and welcome to Industry Night with me, Nikki Nellis, the show that takes you on a deep dive into the happenings of the hospitality industry. Now, every week I get to talk to an incredible array of talented people about their passions and professions. If you're new here, a little bit of background about me. I've been covering the food, beverage, and hospitality scene for the last 20 years. I know, don't look a day over 21. Um, but I do it through print and online and TV and radio, podcast, obviously, and social. Um, 20 years I've been doing the list where you want it.com, the online e-zine that tells you about every restaurant opening, food and wine promo, everything happening around the DC metro area. Every Sunday you tune into Foodie and the Beast for the only food, wine, and radio variety show that just celebrated 15 years on air here in DC that I do with my husband, David. And then of course you follow me at N-Y-C-C-I-N-E-L-L-I-S on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Thread, LinkedIn, and of course now YouTube, where you can find this show. And if you look behind me, or if you've been paying attention, I am in a restaurant today because I have a new residency. I am down at Buzzards Point, the new sparkling development wedged between the wharf and the Navy Yard. Uh, the Point DC, uh, the good people at Fish and Fire Group, also known as Great Casted, um, are hosting Industry Night in this fabulous property. So obviously, I'm grateful. I'm very excited. Because uh, it's so much fun. And if you don't know much about this restaurant, um, it is where the two rivers, the Anacostia and the Potomac, come together to form the point. So it's got this crazy, gorgeous patio with fire pits, and the views are spectacular. Of course, it's great casting. So they're serving seafood, amazing sushi, an incredible raw bar, but they have a huge ass grill. So the food is great, the views are terrific. So if you haven't been, it's time to come. And you can always come on Thursdays because that's when I'm recording the show here. Um, <clears throat> okay, so where have I been? So I literally got off a train this morning because I'm back after a few days in New York City. If you follow me on Insta, you know um, I was there for the Michelin party. Um, so here's the skinny on Michelin. So since it started in D.C. in 2016, there's always been a big blowout party at the French ambassador's residence um, and everybody goes and it's really a party and it's always fun and I love going. Um, and I'm kind of sorry that they're not doing it this year. But instead this year, they decided to do a bigger splashier party up in New York and they gave out the new stars and uh, reinstated the old stars uh, to uh, the chefs from New York, Chicago and DC. So it was kind of a she-she crowd. Uh, let's see, Daniel Balud was there, Thomas Keller was there, uh, Eric Repair was there, all the DC chefs were there, all the Chicago chefs were there. I mean, it was a scene, and I was obviously very grateful to be there, so it was a ton of fun. Um, Petrosian was also there giving out bumps of caviar like they had nothing else to do with their time. But while I was there, I did do some eating. I went back to Frenchette because I love it there and had a very long and lovely lunch of oysters and sausages, runny eggs with mortadella, steak tartare, and the crispiest, fluffiest, crunchiest French fries. And their dessert is probably one of my favorite. It's the pistachio cream Paris breast. Um, it's so good. I did check out the gallery at Smith Hotel for cocktails. It's pretty swanky. The event was at Spring Studios in Tribeca, so it was really cool to see all the people there and sort of reconnect. Um, I stuck with my French theme because late night after the Michelin party, I went to Odeon, which is an old Tribeca favorite, and had more French brasserie food. Um, and then before we came back, I also um, hit up Danny Meyer's new restaurant, Chisiamo. It's in the new... Uh, uh, New York West, Manhattan West area, which is a new development, which is kind of on the other side of Hudson Yards. There's like the Pendry Hotel, the Whole Foods, um, another restaurant called Juju, which I did not go to. And I think Danny Myers always does a really good job. It's Italian. It is um, a pasta place. It has a gorgeous live fire, which they're doing a lot of the cooking over. It's only a month old. Um, hospitality spot on. So Danny Myers. Pasta is good. Um, some of the other dishes needed a little, a little more fire, maybe, but it's new, and uh, I can't wait to go back. So now that brings me into my guest today. 
Uh, so let me see where I am in my show. Okay, so a lot of you may not know this about me, but aside from all my media, my media arm of thelistareyouwanted.com, I also have a consulting arm, and I work with companies like Aramark and Hilton and Napa Valley Vintners. And um, it's probably one of the most rewarding parts of my business because what people hire me to do is be a networker for them, to put me in touch with people that they don't know. And through that, I get to meet all sorts of people that I didn't know before, but I get to know them now because I've done my research and I find out that these are people I should know. Um, so last year I was working on a project in Palm Springs and I came across the incredible Tara Lazar. She is a restaurateur in the truest sense. She cooks, she does all the menu development, she does the look, feel, and vibe are all her in her nine restaurants, which by the way, she has no investors. She's a mom of two, she is a wife. And in her spare time, not only is she opening up two more properties, but let me also add, she also opened up a hotel. So when she and I first met about a project I was working on, I was like, I've got to meet you. And pure serendipity, I happened to be going out to Palm Springs. So I got to go out there for a bit of business and a bit of play. But the highlight was meeting Tara, hanging out with her. I ended almost all of her restaurants, including Cheeky's, which I don't know why there isn't a Cheeky's everywhere. Um, but we're going to get into all that. So I'm so excited because Tara is joining me today. Tara Lazar of F10 Creative. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me. So good. Thank you. Good, good, good. It's hard to hear you a little bit. Can you pull that mic a little closer to your pretty face? Sure. There you okay. go. Much better. Great. So Tara, when we met, I really was kind of shocked at the sort of breadth and depth of your business because you own so many different concepts and do so many different things. Can we talk about how you got involved in the restaurant business to begin with? I started in the restaurant business for breakfast. I love breakfast. Breakfast is one of those, you know, meals very overlooked. I was never in the restaurant business. I was always in finance. I always loved breakfast. I moved back down to Palm Springs, which was where I was born and raised. And I just really wanted a breakfast joint. My friends okay. would I feel like you're yada, yada, yadying over like the important part. So were you in finance? Were you working somewhere? Like what brought you back to Palm Springs? Like what was happening in your life that you decided to open up a restaurant? Because if you were in finance, you know that the money is not in restaurants. The uh, great question. So I used to trade on the Pacific Coast uh, Exchange on the options floor. I was one of the only girls and I loved that. And then I thought I could day trade on my own. And one day I lost so much money. I remember leaving the computer screen and walking outside, getting in my car and seeing like some really fancy Bentley or some crazy car. And I was like, I could have bought that today with the money I lost. Oh my and God. If I'm going to lose money, I'm not going to be losing it in front of a computer screen. I'm going to go do what I really love. And that's the restaurants. And I knew I, I knew you'll never make money in this in this business, but I mean, it's truly, it's so addictive and I love it and I've never looked back. But did you do some sort of like staging? Like, did you go to restaurants and did you, how'd you learn how to do all these things? Because it's not all of it is intuitive, even if you have a background in finance. It's, it, it, it had to be for me. I'd never worked in a restaurant. I'd never worked in a kitchen. I joke okay. that I'd never known that the chits come out of a printer because, you know, you kind of set up your POS, right, as you're starting to open and you're trying to get everything open. So I didn't even know whether I should put them from left to right, right to left. I didn't know whether I should stick them on tape. Like I was such a newbie. Um, I still have my opening chef from 15 years ago and we laugh about it all the time. We both had no idea what we were doing. So but you decided to so go back to Palm Springs. And you decide, I want to open a breakfast place. So what was it, what what was missing from Palm Springs at that time? What was the dining scene like? Was it a big breakfast driven area? Or you're like, screw it, this is what I want. The vibe here was still continental cuisine. Like, no joke. It was like white tablecloth. Your fanciest restaurant was, you know, cooking. 
crepe Suzette and flambés and totally like old school, wonderful continental fair. And, um, you know, I spent a lot of time in San Francisco. I went to school up there. And so I wanted to bring this kind of changing menu. My menu still changes every week. So we could really showcase a lot of the great stuff that gets grown out here. We are like in a major agricultural belt and all of it just gets shipped immediately to LA. So I started getting, you know, really excited about the farmers. They were excited about me. It was like, they're like, finally, we get to actually serve the food to the people, you know, who we grow up for. So that's amazing. So how did you start making those relationships? Because I mean, opening up a restaurant, sitting in a car, driving around, literally farmers markets. And it's not easy. I mean, every chef will tell you this. It's like they don't show up like they're right. down, like the crop didn't harvest yesterday. So, you know, we do that with our eggs. We have our chickens and there are plenty of days we're like running. We're running to a supermarket and who sells flats and crates of eggs because our egg farmer didn't show up. Isn't that crazy? So that's how you started. But what was the original like? Was it hard as a woman? who did not have any restaurant background to go to a real estate guy and be like, yeah, I want to open up a breakfast place there. Not only that, I went to a real estate woman and she laughed at me. Um, Yeah, she, I remember she didn't take me very seriously. And actually to tell you the truth, I had my husband go in and call her um, a little bit later and kind of prove that we were for real. That's upsetting. Yeah, it's a. It, I I never think about that, but yeah, it was a woman who pretty much was like, "Yeah, call me kid when you get, you know, get your act together. I don't know what you're talking about." So okay, so you get the space. How did you know what to do? Did you hire consultants? Like, I I just need to know how you did it. Tar. I'm such a hack. I just you know, there's a lot of. I always say women have like the best gut, right? We have this great gut instinct and I just went with my gut and I actually set up the restaurant completely wrong and I thought that we were gonna be a counter service. So if you look at how it's formed, I have this huge counter in the middle of the dining room that has this big mirror that I was gonna put this glamorous menu on like a la Francaise as they do it. And it just, I the first day we opened, people went and sat straight down at the tables. And I was like, no, you order up at the counter. And they're like, can't you just take my order from here? I'm already sitting down. And it like literally naturally turned into table service right out of the gates. I could never change it. And how did you come about? Because it's a pretty, it's a pretty big menu. I mean, it's not like 10 things. It's a pretty big menu with a huge bakery offering. Like and the tiny kitchen. Yeah. We, you know, we started a lot smaller and we just really got great efficiencies. When you make a lot of the things yourself, you can cross utilize it a little bit more. And so we're just, I think we're really good at that. You'll always see whatever seasonal on the breakfast menu, whether it's incorporated in an omelet or in a scramble, some in some reincantation or even a sandwich, because I mean, that's the thing is you really want to showcase it. So you want to show it as many times as you can. Well, what I think is really interesting, like DC does not have a huge breakfast culture here. Um, There's nothing like Cheekies. And I know there's a lot of um, talk right now about some people opening up breakfast spots. And I'm so curious to see how they do it because you, I mean, there's a line out the door. Like my hotel was across the street from Cheekies and you could see the line. And that's every day, day, no matter how hot it is. I think, you know, chefs don't like they're not morning people like categorically across the world. So everyone dreads doing the morning shift. So it's always like relegated to, you know, the newest, youngest kid who's just trying to get his chops. Um, But the other thing is, is breakfast has such great margins. Like when you start talking about the business of it, we make money in beverages. They're ordering a coffee. They're maybe ordering a cocktail. Maybe they're ordering a juice. It's like, it's such good business. I always wonder why more people don't open breakfast restaurants just on the business side. Do you, so when you opened up Cheekies, was it for the people who live in Palm Springs or is it for the tourists? Because I feel like you have a, you're in Coachella Valley, right? So I mean, what is the, what, who are the people who are coming in? It's totally for the locals. Um, that's where my heart is. And that's why we changed the menu because 
if it's for the tourists, what do they care if they're only here twice a year, right? So we change the menu all the time. We keep our prices so that locals can come there and eat four days a week so that it doesn't feel like a huge splurge. Like we have a line down the street. Everyone tells me you should raise your prices, but I'd rather see your face four days a week and you come for every occasion and not just a special occasion. And that's just kind of, that's, that's the heart of Cheekies is that everyone knows each other. Our, you know, some of our servers have been there for eight, 10, 12 years. Like they've watched them grow up. They have Christmas parties with them, you know, like it's just a family. That's so nice. At what point after you opened Cheekies were you like, I think I know what I'm doing. I got this. Oh my God. Are you kidding? I still know what I'm doing, but, um, I mean, you enough to open up your next place. You know, my next restaurant was just because I wanted something to cater to Cheekies. There's a pizzeria called Pizzeria Bianco in, uh, in Arizona. And he has this wine bar that literally is accommodating the people who are waiting in line for his pizzeria. And I was like, that's genius. I'm going to do that. So that's, that was the birth of Birba. I literally just wanted to like have cocktails, Bloody Marys and mimosas and while people were waiting and the city wasn't so fond of that idea. So they made me build it. Like, that's not what Burba is like, but Burba is pretty fabulous, but it is right next door to Cheeky's. Yeah. What I love about Burba is that it's a completely outdoors. Completely outdoors because you were supposed to be sitting there waiting out al fresco with a Bloody Mary or a mimosa while, while your table was getting ready at Cheeky's. So again, I didn't build it right. I mean, and it's not that nice in Palm Springs that many nights of a year, given that if it's rainy or windy or cold or hot, we're a little out of luck. I know, but you know, everybody on the East Coast thinks Palm Springs is like sunny and beautiful all the time. We appreciate your business in the winter when it's cold and none of the locals will come. It is. I mean, you know, I knew it was going to be like 68 degrees and I really had to sell it to my husband because, you know, he loves to lay out. And I was like, it's going to be 68. It is not going to be 80. And he was like, what are you talking about? We're going to Palm Springs. It's, oh, my gosh. I'm like, not in March. Turtleneck today, and it's like 79 degrees. Don't want to catch a chill. I will tell you, it's also 73 degrees here today. Wow. I mean, it's insane. Nice. Um, okay. So, but when you couldn't do what you wanted at Burba, you did you take a page from Bianco? It was like. Yeah, no, I couldn't. The city, um, the city's like, no, you're building a full kitchen. And no, I, that's what I mean, because you want right, to count. Right. And so then, um, again, the people spoke and we had to listen. They're like, you just have pizza. We want a restaurant. We want like food. And again, you know, it's everyone's dream as a restaurant to have pizzas and salads, but it ended up now we have you know, we have a ton of pastas. We have some, you know, wood-fired chickens. Oh, yeah. What did I have? No, I had the zucchini. What's it called? Why can't I think of what it's called? The Maybe zucchini. Voltini. No, the Voltini. Mm-hmm. Delicious. So, so good. But so did you, I mean, I know your husband's Italian, but is that why you went Italian? Like what, and how did you decide like what you were going to serve and how you were going to do it? Like if you had no... No, I, I'm not kidding. I did not want it to be a restaurant. I put in a pizza oven to satisfy the city just because you have to serve food. You can't just serve alcohol in these neck of the woods. So it was like, what's the easiest common denominator? And I was like, pizza oven. We don't even have a stove in there. We don't have a stove. We don't have a regular oven. We cook off of induction burners. And we have a, now we add up. Ahead, but you are so ahead of where people are right now because like there are restaurants that are just using uh the turbo chefs do you know what i mean like is how they're cooking yeah you're like years before and like live fire like that a restaurant i was just talking about and um new york danny meyer's new place they have a life like live fire Mm -hmm. is really big you know what i mean yeah but you become resourceful right especially in new york i think you have to be more because the spaces are so small but i remember just trying to get birba passed and my kitchen was like 450 square feet, tiny. And someone on the building department was like 400, because I was trying to get a bigger footprint, but they wouldn't let me. So 450 square feet, that's almost half the size of my house. That's big. I mean, these were like my units of measurement, right? In a city council meeting, but yeah. That's a riot. 
Okay, so Berba, how does Berba open compared to Cheeky's? Does it get the same sort of love and attention? I mean, I was there, the place was back, but that was years later. So did you have I'd to work? I'd be lying if I said yes. Um, it is so beautiful. I probably eat there the most. Um, the food is, the food's just consistent and good and tasty and clean. We're not trying to win any awards, but we have a couple salads that are, people's favorite salad in the world. Like we have a tricolore, so basic with fried garlic chips and really uh, thick grated Parmigiano Reggiano and just lemon juice, olive oil, salt and pepper. And it's just a killer. Like you never get sick of it. And um, just, it's that kind of food. We're not, you know, and it's beautiful and it's chic and it's sexy. And it, we have, you know, 20 tables that seat eight or more. So it's always festive and we have a lot of bachelorettes and large parties and families. It's just one of those places. No fuss. Right. No, I, we loved it. I think we ate there twice. I mean, it's just, uh, I get it. But and so at that point now you have two restaurants. I have two restaurants. A space across the street opens up. So now I'm going to have three restaurants and I'm going to do an Asian street food concept. And I'm going to blow the minds of people from Palm Springs because they've all been to other cities and everyone loves Asian food. And I just get it handed to me because Asian food, you don't drink that much, A. You maybe have a beer. You're not drinking a lot of cocktails. You're not drinking bottles of wine except for maybe like a Riesling. And it's all protein. So my protein is, I just use too high of a quality of protein and people want like an $8 lunch special. I was like, my center plate is like $18. I can't even serve you the salad on it for eight bucks. So um, it was a really hard thing. I read an article at the time in like Savor. It says, if you ever want to open up multiple restaurants, um, make sure that they're not all mom and pop and make sure you don't want a family and a life because if not, you're going to end up washing dishes and working the line. And that's exactly what I was doing. I was going through all three of them and I, you know, a chef calls out, a dishwasher calls out, a server calls out. And I'm, and especially with Asian food, it's so, you have to tweak it by taste. Every day is different. It's not like you can follow a recipe. Like the lime juice is always going to taste different in a larb or, you know, everything is, needs to really be finessed. And so I had to be in that kitchen every day and I was dying. Um, and so that's how kind of Mr. Lyons came about. I said, I want something really big where I can, for the first time, hire a real GM and a real chef. And it's 9,000 square feet. And I got to do that. And it's probably my my biggest problem child because it's not me there all the time because it's not meant well, to be. It's a steakhouse. It's a steakhouse. In a really truest sense of the form. It's really clubby. It's got a great vibe. But, and I appreciate what you're saying because these other restaurants are yours. They're very hand, your hands are in all of it. But did you think that a steakhouse didn't need your, your touch as much? I hope that it was, it would be just a little bit more basic for lack of a better word. I mean, I can't even reach the top of our charbroiler if our charbroiler called out. Like it's so high. Um, and I just thought you're doing the classics, like, you don't need this reinvention, this new menu. We're just doing flavors that are really wonderful and expected. And, you know, how hard can that be? But obviously. Well, I mean, for carnivores, sometimes people just want to stay and they just want it really good. Do you know what I mean? Yes, but we really set out to be a vegetarian restaurant that serves steak. So I... I really, you know, the whole meat thing, it's nice to have two or three bites, but every vegetarian knows that a steakhouse has like the best vegetables and the best yeah. vegetables. So I always try to put a lot of attention into all of the veggie stuff. So whether it's side salad, starters. So yeah, our steaks are out of this world and our steak sauces, you know, they've never had problems. But the other things take you know, creativity and seasonality and cardoons only grow, you know, in October. And so we're back in this like problem that if I were there, it would be a little easier to handle, but we just, you know, with another chef, it's, it's hard. Right. But then when you opened up that space, then when did Seymour's come into play? When were you like, now I want the bar? 
a year later, we finally did it, right? Yeah, it was a little bit of a health department sneak too. But um, yeah, so we, it's all approved now, but I wouldn't have said that then. So yeah, we had this back room bar that would have never gotten approved the way we originally formatted it. So we had to like pause it and wait for that health department person to not be our next inspector. <laughs> so okay. And so, yeah, it was a year later. It's named after my dad. Um, it is just what I look for in the cocktail bar. It doesn't have a sign. It is great cocktails. I hope it's not pretentious. Um, it has really interesting things. It's not too fussy. It's not too precious. It's just dark. You can have great conversations. You can meet whatever but did you develop the menu for Seymour's like at what point are you stepping back and bringing in other experts or are you like no this is I don't do the cocktail menu my partner Steen who's my best friend of 25 years does it I drink tequila so I'm a waste of time with the cocktail side of things okay but with what about the menu at the steakhouse Absolutely. Um, it's all you're in there, you're getting creative, you're still a part of that, right? Absolutely, yeah. Okay, and then where does Two Cans fit in? Two Cans was a fun drag bar opportunity that the owners were gonna kind of give it up and we wanted to salvage it. And so uh, we picked it up and put it in our like family. And so what for people who haven't been there, what? What's that? Because that, is that, are you, is there food there or is it strictly just no food? Food, just drag, drag in a bar. I mean, nothing's anything wrong with it. It's always fun. Yeah. Um, I like to go to bed early, so we try to do drag shows before midnight. It used to be more of a club, but it's not anymore. The owners are old. Okay. But are, is it someplace that, like people just come, do you do brunch there? Like, give me more of a vibe of the place. There is no food. It's just, you know, we're in such a wonderful creative community and drag has been part of Palm Springs fabric for 30, 40 years. And just, it's important to me, to the community. Well, and I love that. And, you know, the community is um, in Palm Springs. One of the things I loved about it was just this, like, really great air do you know what I mean like you have a lot of there's so much art and so much interest in Palm Springs and people like everywhere we went we were just talking to people next to us like people are interested and interesting and it's just a it's such a communal community I guess the best way to say it and cool people come here we you know we have very well traveled interesting people who end up wanting to come to the desert so it naturally creates for a cool it's not pretentious it's you know it's just it's just cool yeah i agree well plus i'm you know, i'm a little obsessive about mid-century modern like i just the architecture is just so fantastic um so okay so you have these couple of restaurants you get two cans what comes next for you how do we get into hotels what's the what's the timeline here what what's our next steps Hotel and Birba came at the same time. So I, I closed on the hotel like the same day I broke ground at Birba. So those kind of mountained at me yeah. at the same time. Um, somewhere in there, I opened up a catering company um, because it's the only way we can afford all the things that we want because it's the only real part of our business that makes any kind of money. So uh, Palm Springs is interesting because it has so many photo shoots and um, great events that happen, whether it's Coachella or golf or tennis events. So there's a good area for us to bring that very farm forward food um, that you don't normally see in catering opportunities. And so we do really well. You know, we have a lot of photo shoots with models who, you know, don't eat dairy or meat or vegetables or anything other than you know, Kleenex and we homemade Kleenex if we have to. So, uh, but you know, it's just, it's, it's a fun business because it, I still get to cook in it all the time and it's always changing and there's always some variable that goes, you know, differently than expected. So it keeps you on your toes. You but is it catering or is it events? Are you catering oh. and events? So yeah. you're like, 
somebody can come in and do a whole thing, like a whole wedding with you or a whole whatever with you, right? Like you do all the things. Yeah, or we'll set up a photo shoot in the middle of Joshua Tree and have an espresso cart that's running off of solar power, whatever. We just, yeah, a lot of fun experiences happen out here. So can we talk about how you got creative with that? Like, did people ask for things and you were like, let's use the espresso cart, right? We want to do a photo shoot in Joshua Tree. There is nothing in Joshua Tree. So they're like, how do you bring craft services, for lack of a better term, right, to Joshua Tree? And were you like, I don't know, I'm going to figure it out? Like, how did you do it? Exactly that. And, you know, when you have some of the same clients and they're, they kind of trust you, you can move a little bit like we do, like donut luges. And we do, you know, you want to always kind of surprise them. And so... What? Not luge. I need to know what that is. So we make this like cactus wall with like a tunnel through it and we like pop donuts in from the backside so they come down the slide and like land in cinnamon sugar and then there's like little dipping. It's ridiculous. We're just ridiculous. ridiculous. We're ridiculous. That's not like things that models are eating on a uh, photo shoot. Oh, you'd be surprised. You'd be like, they don't eat any gluten, but suddenly when the donut luge comes out, there's space for that. Yeah. <laughs> the catering business, where did you decide that I need this for the money? And did that go hand in hand with the hotel? Like, it sounds like you did all this in a, in a very short amount of time. Doesn't feel like that. But um, it it's just like necessity is the mother of invention, right? So I think people started asking if Cheeky cater some parties and so that's why we changed the name of it just to let them know that um we we aren't always cheekies and we can do all sorts of food and then once we had lots of restaurants we could do asian or you know italian and then so it grew from that you know it's like you go to your favorite restaurant like wouldn't it be nice to have friendship cater your next party while you're in new york it's just a natural thing you're like i love their food and i want it in my house right Right, but but creating the space for it. So is that catering hall also like a commissary? Like are you, for, for all your different restaurants, like are there things like breads or sauces or things like that that you just make there? We used to, until two days ago, do it out of all the restaurants. So when Cheeky's closed, it's, you know, it's a breakfast restaurant, so it has space at night. We would be using Mr. Lyons in the morning because it's a steakhouse at night. So we would alternate it, but we just built a 9,000 square foot uh, kitchen that woo just got final two days ago. So we just moved into that like massive refrigeration and freezer and it's dreamy. Lots of ovens that you don't have to share. So, but so I understand the inner workings of a commissary, but for a restaurant group your size, can you explain to people how a commissary is going to make business better for you and sort of the value that it brings to you? in what you're bringing to your restaurants? For me, when I have a lot of brands, uh, consistency is one of our biggest and most important things. So we can't have one restaurant that is off and not on par with the rest of them because it ruins our entire you know, integrity. So to have a commissary kitchen and be able to make sure that sauces are being made once and they're being, you know, distributed. It just takes out a lot of the um, kind of liability of of inconsistency. So um, that's one great thing. Obviously, we have efficiencies. You get economies of scale. You have one person making a sauce. Um, and then we can bake a lot more. When you have a breakfast restaurant, you need a lot of really good baked goods, and um, just to be able to have the refrigeration to, you know, keep cookie batters and stuff so you're not making them every two three days is right that makes sense and it must also be a lot of value with a kitchen that size for your catering as well and we right? can do things on the fly which is you know so many times whether it's a private airplane leaving palm springs airport you know we can accommodate that kind of thing in two three hours notice which is you know to be nimble is really nice i bet that sounds um well it seems like you're always nimble because you've always been evolving to create this business. And maybe that's why you're so successful, where I think a lot of other people have a lot of very hard and fast rules about when you can order by what, you know, these are the rules. We yeah. don't bend. Do you know what I mean? And maybe. Yeah. 
And the team, you know, as we try to get better, like SOPs into our into organization, that's something that they want. It's something I always push back on. It's like spontaneity is part of our culture. It's like what we're adventurous. And part of that is we can't be rigid. So it's a pushback. It's interesting. Well, and I'm sort of curious, I mean, given what you have going on in the back of the house, I mean, which is what we've really talked about, how does that relate to what's going on in the front of the house? Like, how are you able to bring in good managers, good employees? How are you able, how are you able to imbue your spirit through that? You know, front of house is interesting because it's not my people. My people's really back of house just because I'm always in the kitchen and I'm always cooking. So I'm always so grateful when I find someone who really knows service or really knows how to do a great pre-shift or communicates really well. And it's something that uh, in my in the desert, it's hard because a lot of the people that live here haven't had fine dining experience. Like they're full of heart and they're great hard workers, but you're trying to have them create an experience that they've never been to. And so there's a lot of like fantasy and, you know, pretend that happens of like, imagine if you were going out on a date or you were with your in-laws for the first time, what experience would you like them to have, you know? And, um, I, you know, everyone says it, labor, labor stuff. We, spend a lot of time on our culture. So hoping that people don't leave and just that whole retraining process is so expensive, both in time and energy and heart. And so we, we, we try to really take our time to interview people and then spend a lot of time with people and um, really develop a culture where we can bring our leaders from within instead of, um, you know, train them up. I love people who have very little experience, but who have great hearts and great work ethics. That's like my ideal. Uh, and we get to really train them in like our style and they don't have bad habits from the Olive Garden announcing their name when they come to the table and say, are you still working on that? And all these terrible things that corporate restaurants have, you know, messed with our service industry about. And, you know, it's, we, I think we're doing okay. And um, how was it for you because you had all these restaurants and staffing, like how, I mean, on the West Coast, how did you handle what happened with the pandemic and how are you coming out on the other side of it? I, uh, it was just devastating to lose our veterans. I think that's what was so tough more than, you know, rehiring and everything. Just our veterans were our anchors. And I think so many people just left the industry in general. And uh, I also feel that it's, we're finally coming out of it. I don't feel the pandemic thing, but we still have so much debt from the pandemic that I I know my colleagues in this business don't want to deal with. And no one talks about that. PPP didn't cover the debt. A lot of us didn't get the revitalization money. And so we had to take extra loans. And I think it's insurmountable for a lot of us. And luckily, I have a catering company. But if I just had standalone restaurants, no chance. No, I mean, I do. I, I mean, I literally on my last show, that's what we were talking about with one of the chefs uh, and his restaurants. He opened up a restaurant. He was from Singapore. He opened up a restaurant in the D.C. market, you know, three weeks before the pandemic hit. And, you know, I, even though he's still here, he actually opened up another restaurant. But I, you know, it just sounds like, it, there's just so many things, there's so many pushes against you in this industry right now, whether it's inflation, tipping, prices, labor mm -hmm. shortages, all of it. Up. We have a fast food, you know, clause where fast food is going to pay their labor, you know, $22, $25. We're going to lose all of our line staff because why work for 19 when you can go work for 25 Right. And then there's the whole service charge issue. You know, how, how do you handle that gratuity? Mm -hmm. There's the, I feel, and you're in it, but as an observer and somebody who's got my fingers in it, the, when the pandemic started, there was a lot of talk about, we've got like Tom Colicchio, we've got to change the way this industry works. You know, we have to do it. And everybody's like, yes, but then nobody did anything. Do you know what I mean? Cause everybody was, was chasing their tails. I mean, for good reason. Yeah. 
but now we're kind of here and I feel like there's like people are trying to figure out how to change the industry but but they're just doing it while it's happening and so lot, there's so much confusion because as you know people who dine in restaurants think they know restaurants but they don't they just eat in a restaurant do you know what i mean it's a it's a real yes, mystery very well. <laughs> oh. um, but i mean even danny meyer who's such a legend trying to change the tipping process like if danny can't do it who can I know, you know, I was talking about this with this Chef Pepe who I was just with, and he said the same exact thing. And I said, I, I wonder if, I can't speak for Danny Meyer, but I do wonder if, if he thought, I'll do this and others will follow. Of course. Because I think if more people followed, then the conversation wouldn't have been so drastic and so confusing. Um, because it is confusing, right? It's it's, I don't know why it's so confusing, but it is. It's not. It, it's it's just you're changing an entire ethos. So you need a you know you need more than Danny Meyer, and no one really jumped on that bandwagon. Oddly enough, and I remember just kind of waiting the sidelines, and I said, "I'm ready to go, but I'm not going to be the first goat to do it out here in California." And so, yeah, we needed more people to do it, and uh, but then the pandemic came. I mean. Look at look at the plastics market and the disposables market and the com the composting like all of that just fell by the wayside like we're just trying to survive you're like styrofoam bring it back if it's cheaper it's you know but we just you you had to do it and I think we're coming out of it we need there needs to be some big shift I'm, I'm still positive and obviously long on this whole thing but there needs to be some really good shift. Well, and you started a charity during the pandemic, right? I did. That's my love and my life. Uh, I've always been involved in childhood nutrition, but this is really getting food out to people in the deserts. There is so much uh, food scarcity in our backyard. It's shocking. The, the more I learn, the more ignorant I feel, truly. But this is... it. When you start looking into this, if I can just preach for a second, there's plenty of food out there. It's always transportation. So a lot of these people don't have cars, don't have access to public transportation. Um, and those are the people that are the hungriest. So how do we get food out to them quickly? How do we get good food out to them quickly that's not canned and that's actually made from scratch? And how do we also, how do we make food that they're going to want to eat? So you have kids. You have different ethnicities who, you know, use different starches and uh, basics that, you know, you you see peanut butter in every food pantry box and Latinas don't eat peanut butter. You know, you just you have to be sensitive to all the little nuances of it. And, you know, with the truck that we have and that we're we're building more, we can get to different places really quick, feed people very quick and get the food going to the next place. And we're not so anchored into something like a food bank. Can you talk about how you how you figured out how to do that? Because food scarcity is is a tremendous topic. There are so many people who, I mean, there's not food, there's plenty of food. You're 100% right. It's just getting it into the people's mouth because there's so much food waste. I mean, you know that being in the industry. And there's so the like you have, that's a big component that people don't talk about. You can't admit that you're hungry and you haven't eaten in a meal because you can't afford to eat. And when you, when you think of teenagers, when you're already going through everything else, what you're going to admit that you're hungry and you haven't eaten, you know, so we wanted to deliver in a way that was really fun. And it just, it didn't feel embarrassing that it had you know, dignity and all those great great food delivered so that you feel like you matter and it just it ticks so many boxes food truck it's just it's my baby it has so automatic down the side so it come from is it donations is it grant based like how are you where does the food come from to bring to the to the kids uh, currently, it's all from our restaurants so we um, we have recipes and and things we've developed so that uh, we can really maximize high nutrient dense foods, whether they're burritos or meatballs that are like easy and um, that transport well and that hopefully kids like and we can package them cute. There's like a lot of parts to it that make it into our menus. And um, yeah, we hope to get a grant. Interestingly enough, it's 
it's harder to get the food to people than we realize. There's a lot of trust issues in these communities. So you can't just show up and give food. So we've really had to create alliances with people on the ground who uh, will announce that we're coming and kind of vet us and let people know that we're good and we don't have ulterior motives. And uh, it's a very marginalized community in in itself. And, you know, and then you're trying to give them something they're going to put in their mouth. It's one thing if you're handing them a t-shirt, but they have to eat it. So they really have to trust you. So it's, it's just, it's, it's been a wonderful process learning how, you know, how to get food out in, in the right way. Right. Cause I think for a lot of people who have food, who have access to food, who food is not an issue, they can't relate. They think, well, if you're hungry and you don't have the money and somebody brings you food, you're going to eat what you get. Do you know what I mean? Which is not the way to have an open dialogue with people who are struggling or in a, in a place that doesn't allow them to live their best lives. Like you have to meet people where they are. And, and add on one more component, kids, like they don't eat anything that you give them. We all know that just because they're hungry doesn't mean they're going to eat it. So if they don't like it, they're not going to eat it. So that's like another wonderful, like complicated spin in all this of how do we get food that kids are going to eat without packing it with sugar and salt. So Right. So, so that charity is called F10 Love. F10 Love. Yep. And that's still activated, right? Like you're still yeah. working on it. Absolutely. I want to go back quickly before we wrap up. You mentioned eggs earlier and it sort of made me remember we had a conversation about the eggs you use and the farmer, but I can't remember. It's like really fascinating, but I can't remember what the deal was. I should have asked you before the show, what's the deal with your eggs? I don't know. I don't remember the deal. I, you know, I met them, I met them 15 years ago and, um, I, they, they're fully vertical. So they grow the feed on their land. And so they, chickens eat what they grow. So it, there's no outside uh, potential of contamination. They wash them and they deliver them. Uh, I know there was a time that all their chickens died one year because it got too hot and they couldn't like hose them down. And chickens die like they literally like drop dead if it gets too hot and they're not protected. So I remember one year we bought them a whole new chicken coop and you know a whole new a whole new round of chickens so they could <laughs> create more chickens for our eggs. But you know. They, during COVID, you know, we lost relationships with them. They didn't have, you know, the the staff to bring chickens out and we had to find other, you know, it, we're, we all have to adjust constantly to farmers It's and bless them. But it's so, you know, hard to keep up with when you have other things that you're dealing with. You're chasing your tail. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Hey. I want to end on something that I know you just started last year, the pies, the hand pies. What's happening with that? You know, I need you for these hand pies. So, okay. So it's higher going to be in the pie business. Um, I was, I opened a restaurant down in Oceanside and then next to it was a Top Gun house where the Top Gun movie was filmed. And the owner's, kind of asked me if I could think of something. I was like, guys, this is not my jam. I don't do like confections and cute little packaging. Um, and I, they just like think of something. And I was like, apple pie, that's like military and Top Gun. And they're like, make it better. So we made it apple pie with ice cream in the middle. So it's an a la mode. It's hot on the outside and it's frozen in the middle. And I thought I could find a pie packer or someone who would make it for me. And I couldn't. And so you make it your own, right? Like, so you were making it, right? The concept. Uh, yeah, and still am. Yeah. It's, we kind of invented it, right? So it's, right. it's kind of like frozen ice cream with apple pie on the outside. It takes a lot of steps. And what's that? It sounds like it. It's crazy. And so we panicked and we had to make it with like, piece together like a dough sheeter. And you should see how labor intensive this is. Uh, and I decided for some crazy reason, I was like, let's buy a machine that automates this. And um, I'm hoping that we can take this, 
product um, a little bit outside of our pie shop because it's going to make 5,000 pies an hour. Uh, it, can, it doesn't always have to have ice cream in it, but it's going to be great for F10 Love because we'll be able to make really nutrient-dense pies, whether they're savory or sweet, that are really transportable and kids will eat them because they're small and they look like Hot Pockets and Pita Pockets and all the you know fun little packaged stuff that's processed. And then it's great for, we don't have any competition in the dessert market in like arena business or we have churros and Dippin' Dots. So I'm hoping people will eat these pies. They also happen to be gluten-free. So it's nice for people who don't eat gluten. Hopefully um, you won't taste that it's gluten-free. That's the idea. We don't market it that way. And um, we'll put pies in uh, every kiosk around the world. <laughs> I just love the idea. I mean, it does that. The ice cream component does make it sound very labor intensive, but it sounds delicious. It's so special. It's just like, it's like crunchy and then you bite into it and it's cold and ice creamy and it's just, it's apple pie a la mode on a stick. It sounds so good. All right, Tara, what's coming up next other than pie? We have um, two in the pipeline, going back to that pizza concept, um, doing a really nice community kind of oriented coffee shop that will just have pie by the slice, pizza pie, not um, sweet pie. Um, and that is in conjunction with our, a, um, our headquarters. Um, I'm sure my staff will be drinking too much espresso and eating too much pizza, but uh, yeah. it's so wait, it's good. By the, is it by the commissary? It is. It's on okay. the end of the commissary. And mm -hmm. then um, we're opening up a beer by Cabazon. So uh, going into the outlet malls, it's very different for me to do something like that. I just want to test the concept and see if we can do it outside of our market and see whether it has legs to do multiples. Well, I have no doubt that it does because I loved it there. But I doing something. I know doing something that is so. You're taking the concept, but the way you have to activate it is so different. It can be a little, you know, it's a little scary. It's always scary. But you can handle it, right? But you know, what's the worst that can happen? You close it down, right? right? Exactly. That's yeah. how we learn, you know? Yeah. But I have no doubt it'll be good. All right, listen, I so appreciate your time. Oh, you know, nice. Thank you for listening. Be mom with all, you know, 10 places and all these things happening. Um, so I really can't tell you how much I appreciate your time. I'm going to ask you to hold for one sec while I wrap up the show and just hang with me. So I want to thank all of you for joining me and Tara Lazar today, F10 Creative. If you have not been out to Palm Springs to see what she's doing, you are missing, first of all, you're missing an amazing place. But her stuff is terrific. And I feel so fortunate that I got to meet her because she's um, just a firebrand she's just doing more things and i just i just don't see as many women like her in our industry so it's always so exciting to be able to talk to people like her and to hear what she has to say of course everything you heard here today you can find on the list or you want it.com follow me at n-y-c-c-i-n-e-l-l-i-s instagram facebook and twitter um out everything all the necessities will be in show notes and uh, be safe out there have a delicious week Produced by HeartCast Media.